welcome. Um, Dr. Cooter is going to be speaking to us about constructing a standard of care, challenges in pathway development for advanced breast cancer. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming back from lunch. Um, I'm coming here from Seattle, and it's my distinct pleasure to going through a lot of new data. I am consultant for uh, quite a few companies, but not on the Speakers Bureau. Um, I do sit on ASCO and have been on NCCN guidelines um, and don't own any direct stock. Um, we have a lot of data, so we won't have time to go through the learning objectives. Um, you all are familiar with the clinical and socioeconomic challenges, so again, I, I will not bother you with those details. Just to highlight, uh, as you are well aware of um, more than most uh, in academia, the financial toxicity of our patients is mounting uh, yearly, and um, there is no relief in sight, unfortunately. There are a lot of teams discussing this, researching this, um, involved with policymakers, but it is a major challenge for our patients. That's become a major discussion point in therapy. Talking about briefly about pathways, you're well aware of NCCA guidelines and that they've partnered with McKesson uh, since 2012. They even done a survey at the beginning, uh, and it, it appears pathways help clinicians, we hope so anyway, um, for most uh, at the time, uh, did not think it decreased quality of care, but I'm sure uh, those aspects have changed as well, and love to actually have a discussion afterwards with the audience how, what your experience has been. Uh, the word pathway is not the same for everyone. Uh, it depends on the perspective of the developer. And again, I, I, I think this audience is well-educated, and I'd love to hear more. Uh, there can be issues, uh, single institutions. Uh, it may reflect their objective and restraints. Um, some pathways, especially large oncology groups, uh, uh, has a particular uh, focus on clinical trials, which is important, uh, but it may uh, deflect from some other important issues along the way, including supportive care potentially, uh, uh, as well as um, commercial pathways may um, be driven by rebates and other financial incentives, so uh, there are some caveats there. So therefore, ASCO has come up with formal uh, ASCO pathway guidance. Robin Zahn has led the effort uh, with a nice team, including Gary Lyman and Linda Bosseman. And just to caveat, Dr. Lyman is my husband, um, so there's some additional disclosure there. Uh, <laughs> um, so the pathways um, are supposed to be driven by experts, uh, should be transparent and comprehensive. Implementation, obviously, they should be user-friendly, and I uh, encourage you to, to read through. I think it might be helpful if you have not had the chance yet. And uh, they should be really, um, there should be analytics. We should look at outcomes. We should look at performance. Again, we should know who sits on the panels, how, how these guidance or these pathways are doing, and promote research and quality improvement along the way. But let's hit the data for metastatic breast cancer. A lot of new exciting things have come along, including ESMO. We just came back from Barcelona. And it's been probably one of the most remarkable um, uh, breast cancer uh, large uh, conferences uh, we can remember. And just briefly to discuss um, outcomes uh, data, overall survival versus progression-free survival, a gentle reminder, progression-free survival is only a surrogate and really is only there to guide us uh, which treatments will likely develop uh, overall survival improvement, but it does not guarantee it. So progression-free survival improvement does not guarantee the patient lives longer, and by itself, it doesn't improve the quality of life either. And there's poor correlation with quality of life, so a treatment that 
fails to show overall survival improvement and fails to show quality of life improvement is not truly beneficial to your patient. And I think sometimes we forget that as it gets used for early approval by the FDA. So quality of life uh, is, is a patient-centered outcome that will come more and more. Uh, and the FDA is working on formal guidance there as well. You probably have heard that as well. Um, we've had challenges in metastatic breast cancer over the last decade to really improve overall survival. More recent, especially endocrine therapy, has changed that, and we'll go through the data. You're all very familiar with the molecular subtypes, uh, including the intrinsic subtypes, but now we're finally starting to see the molecular revolution take shape and impact our clinical care and challenge our clinical care. So uh, as you're well aware of in the ERP-positive ER space, PIG3CA mutations, BRCA mutations uh, have now entered uh, formal FDA-approved drugs. ESR1 mutations are not yet ready for prime time. Uh, I think that has been confused somewhat in, in the community, including academic medical centers. Uh, in the basal cell, or, basal cell or triple negative breast cancer um, setting, we do again have the recommendations, and we have now PDL1 expression data. Um, and under HER2 setting, there will be some biomarkers, novel biomarkers coming along as well, but they're not quite yet ready for prime time either. And down at the bottom, uh, there will be hopefully many more coming. Uh, in the not-so-distant future. So let's look at the recent updates in your positive breast cancer. Uh, it has been an acceleration of FDA approval, and on here, uh, we don't even yet have the PARP inhibitors. So looking at what has uh, particularly changed since uh, recent NCCN uh, updates, uh, the m inhibitors we have already had, uh, the CDK4-6 inhibitors we have already had, but we have now more overall survival data, and we now have alpalisib uh, together with fulvestrant uh, in PIK3CA mutant breast cancer. Uh, so... Uh, just to remind yourself not to go into any detail, but uh, the various pathways that we're targeting in ER-positive breast cancer, this is a slide to take home with you, and you can kind of familiarize yourself. Why are we looking at these agents? And uh, theoretically, they all make sense, and CDK4-6 inhibitors are a really central part in the pathway inhibition and have really changed the phase of ER-positive breast cancer, and we'll go through the data now. So the unmet need of premenopausal women uh, and CDK4-6 data, you've heard the Molilisa data already, with uh, comparing ribocyclib plus uh, AI, or TAM, and uh, ovarian suppression uh, versus uh, placebo. And we have heard uh, the nice overall survival improvement uh, uh, for these data, uh, and it's been quite impressive, the hazard ratio uh, of 0.71, and we have not in, in reached median overall survival. Uh, it, it's been shown in the major subgroups as well, so uh, we are comfortable that most patients uh, should benefit uh, from this effort. Um, no new safety data were found in the premenopausal space. Um, a caveat, however, tamoxifen is not officially approved only uh, for non-steroidal AIs, uh, plus ovarian suppression. And we've heard recently that pneumonitis risk, 1% to 3% across CDK4-6 inhibitor agents. We don't have much detail on this. Uh, supposedly only less than 1% uh, events are fatal, but uh, clearly more needs to be learned 
about this, and that goes across UK for six inhibitors. Now, we've had until ESMO uh, this year some phase two data uh, in, in premenopausal women, uh, com- including a palbo plus uh, AI in ovarian suppression compared to capecitabine. Uh, it's a phase two study, so uh, it's not definitive data, but again, encouraging a uh, very similar hazard ratio in the, in the 0.65, 0.7 range, um, probably very similar benefit, but not phase three data. And again, the subgroups look very encouraging as well. So uh, looking across the major phase three trials of CDK46 inhibitors, uh, overall survival, we've had Paloma 3 showing overall survival data in postmenopausal women. We've had Mona Lisa 7 that you've been aware of in premenopausal women showing overall survival improvement. And now since ESMO 2019, we also have overall survival improvement for epimacyclic uh, plus fulvestin in premenopausal women, both in the uh, first and second line metastatic disease, and we have uh, ribocyclic, ribocyclic plus fulvestrin overall survival improvement in postmenopausal women, uh, first and second line. So now we have overall survival improvement across all three agents, with now ribocyclic actually having both in conjunction with fulvestrin as well as in conjunction with aromatase inhibitors showing the overall survival improvement. We have it across uh, premenopausal and postmenopausal women as well as early stage uh, or first line as well as second line therapy. So that's second line data. This is the first line overall survival improvement data. So looking at Monarch 2, uh, nearly 700 patients were uh, randomized 2 to 1 to abemacyclam versus placebo. The overall survival, I don't even show you progression-free survival, we don't even have time for that. Overall survival improvement and over nine months improvement, hazard ratio 0.75. Mona Lisa, uh, comparing ribocyclic uh, versus placebo uh, in postmenopausal women, including men, over 700 patients. Overall survival was the secondary outcome, yet uh, it shows a nice overall survival improvement with a hazard ratio of 0.72, so all very similar. They're all in that same range, that 0.7 range. Median overall survival has not been reached, but it's at 36 months uh, and 42 months, uh, 9 and 12% difference. And the landmark analysis, a nice p-value showing superiority. Uh, just a reminder, this was the Paloma overall survival data, only around 500 patients. Similar hazard ratios, although in the uh, 0.8 range, but this was a more heavily pretreated patient population. And that's a reminder here that um, the efficacy data, and this is now looking at progression-free survival data for these trials, is um, we should not compare across trials because the level of pretreatment uh, uh, in the control arm or in these patient populations um, was different, and and therefore the progression-free survival in the control arm decreases um, and does not reflect uh, drug efficacy differences. Just to remind you, the Everlimus data that we've had in Bolero 2 compared to AI did not show an overall survival improvement. Um, We had uh, in a small uh, study Everlimus plus Tamoxifen in the Tamrat study, we did see an overall survival improvement, um, but again, small study. So more limited data, probably a tougher toxicity profile for Everlimus now compared to CDK for six inhibitors. 
This is just a summary slide. Again, we won't go into the details, but for your records, uh, that may have now a nice overall survival improvement across these trials, including first and second line, but limited for uh, Everlimus plus AI. Briefly, subgroup analysis that was shown uh, at ASMO. Uh, we don't have time, unfortunately, to go through the data, but the take-home message is, um, which you can take into your clinical practice, CDK4-6 inhibitors not only improve progression-free survival, but also overall survival in first and second line in metastatic ER-positive breast cancer patients. Um, it's irrespective of prior line of therapy as well as endocrine sensitivity, so these studies nicely went into the detailed data, and uh, everybody's in agreement that that's the take-home message, uh, as well as side of metastases and menopausal status. At least currently, uh, we don't think there is any obvious difference with the caveat subgroup analysis. They're underpowered, uh, so we won't get that p-value. We won't get the confidence intervals. Um, and we should not compare across trials. And so far, we have no biomarkers to uh, identify, uh, select a subgroup where we can hold off with CDK4-6 inhibitors. Hopefully, this will change. As well, the hope is, and the discussion has started, that we need a large meta-analysis that combines the individual patient data for these trials to really dig into these subgroups. There might be differences. Currently, we cannot um, uh, differentiate, but hopefully, we can further uh, drill down. But uh, currently, for visceral disease, uh, as well as lung metastasis, did not appear to be a difference uh, uh, for CDK4-6 inhibitor efficacy uh, versus not. The other major question that's come out of ESMO, particularly, again, the need for quality of life data and real-world toxicity data, also, again, in light of this pneumonitis story that's developing and will probably increase, um, especially for our geriatric patients, as quality of life clearly changes this as patients. Uh, you as clinicians, uh, I, uh, you see this. It's a very different story to take the combo versus an AI alone, especially for our older and comorbid patients, especially also sicker, and we, we don't even know the details yet about how comorbidities affect us. So we do need to become more personalized, uh, and we do need to guide our patients that this impacts your quality of life if this is of value to them. So uh, in summary, we have palbocyclic first-line data, progression after endocrine therapy data. We have premenopausal data, although that's not only phase two data. We now have ribocyclic first-line data, first-line data for premenopausal women, and second-line data with fluorescein. And we have abomocyclic now that now has the most comprehensive list of data. First-line progression after endocrine therapy, premenopausal premenopausal data first and second line, and we have the monotherapy data, although it's question uh, what to do with that. Caveats, uh, as you are well aware of probably already, uh, CNS penetration, amicyclic appears to have uh, superiority there, or not superiority, but um, probably it's the preferred agent in, in some of these brain metastases. They all have neutropenia and uh, thrombocytopenia to various effects, as you know. Uh, the ribocyclic has the issue of LFTs as well as QTC syndrome or QTC prolongation, and abomocyclic has the major diarrhea issue, and that has been a real issue in my practice, and I know many of my colleagues as well. So the future of CDK4-6 inhibitors, so while we have looked at the traditional endpoints of progression-free survival as the surrogate, and finally we do have the definitive overall survival data, what I think will actually uh, further drive this practice is the patient-related outcomes, especially 
quality of life, but also time to chemotherapy. And these agents have shown at ESMO to prolong, uh, to delay chemotherapy start, but also pain relief. And then sequence, how should we sequence the agents? Uh, there are uh, trials underway to compare that as well. Potential future biomarkers. Um, there has been a nice analysis from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group at ASCO. Again, a busy slide, uh, uh, over 800 patients. Take home message there is uh, we are in the process of understanding resistance mechanism better, but we do not have any definitive biomarkers. So this will give us a hypothesis of what combinations to use, but in clinical practice, not yet ready for prime time. How about PIK3CA in your positive metastatic breast cancer? You're all aware of SOLAR1, the phase three randomized double blind placebo control trial of alpelisib in metastatic ear positive HER2 negative uh, breast cancer. Um, it was assessed across uh, mutant and non mutant patients, but the primary hypothesis that this would be only effective in mutant patients, and clearly that's what the data are showing us. So looking at tumor tissue uh, in PIK3CA mutant patients, we have an over five-month improvement in progression-free survival. The overall survival data is still pending, uh, but uh, FDA appropriately has approved this. Uh, it can be used uh, in clinical care. Now, they also looked at ctDNA uh, with the uh, caveat, and they, they showed a nice improvement as well in efficacy. Um, but I should caution you, the assays are not really ready in, in breast cancer use, uh, and we should really focus on tissue, and ctDNA should only be looked at if you really don't have access to tissue, and it should be really the, the metastatic biopsy we should look at. How about checkpoint inhibitors in ear-positive breast cancer? We can make this very quick. We won't even look at the study design because we have curves that are overlapping. And while it was just a phase two study, adding pembrolizumab to aribolin, um, clearly there is no efficacy benefit here, and this is not going to be further developed without biomarkers, which is where we should be going anyway. So updates in triple negative breast cancer. We have in Passion uh, 130 study. Uh, you've uh, heard again uh, last year and this year at ASCA it was updated, uh, looking at atelzolizumab plus napaclitaxel compared to placebo uh, plus napaclitaxel. This is in first-line patients without any prior therapy. And these were co-primary endpoints both for the ITT population looking at progression-free and overall survival, as well as the subgroup of pdl one positive patients, it's, which makes it four comparison groups, and they were only supposed to look at the overall survival data in the pdl one positive subgroup. If the overall survival data in the ITT group was positive, did not quite meet that. So officially, we should not be looking at the overall survival in the pdl one subgroup. So there are some, a lot of caveats here. But um, uh, overall, progression-free survival not improved in the ITT group, and not surprising, was improved uh, uh, by about 2.5 months in the pdl one positive subgroup. 
Can overall survival, we did not have a definitive overall survival improvement in the ITT population, so we really shouldn't be looking at the overall survival in the pd one positive group, but we are because there appears to be a very promising trend uh, in the five to seven month range. Uh, although it's very small patient numbers, this could be a fluke of uh, small patient numbers uh, and imbalances in other response biomarkers such as TILS and, and many other that are being looked at um, or under development uh, that have not panned out yet in breast cancer uh, in a definitive fashion. Um, so there are questions there. Um, how meaningful this is in breast cancer. Nevertheless, the FDA, rightfully so, is this is such a patient group in need, has uh, given accelerated approval, uh, but we will be getting follow-up trials uh, in the space looking at pd one inhibitors plus chemotherapy in metastatic triple negative breast cancer to confirm that these are truly meaningful uh, and data that can be confirmed in future trials. What has been really helpful at ESMO is Hobrugo's presentation, actually looking at the PD-1-HC assays, which have been giving us a lot of headaches as breast cancer uses a different assay as other uh, tumor types uh, to assess PD-1 status. So this was a postdoc exploratory analysis comparing the three major assays, IHC assays available um, to assess PD-L1. And the first line is the take-home message. The approved assay, it has been uh, approved by the FDA for tisolizumab in breast cancer. The SP142 from Ventana uh, at 1% cutoff is still, is the approved test and is, remains the standard of care. Uh, it, it shows the best efficacy, actually, interestingly enough. It's essentially a subgroup of pdl one positive patients when you compare them to the other assays. About only 64% of the 22C3 and 69% of the SP263 are positive uh, by uh, SP142 standard assay. Um, So by luck, uh, they had the right assay and they found uh, the more responsive subgroup. Um, And so uh, this is the the subgroup that appears to be um, most deriving the most benefit from atezolizumab. Uh, when you add the other patients that are positive with the other assays, the benefit nearly disappears. Uh, also, what came out of the presentations at ASMO, including other individuals, that uh, there are differences in pd one positivity um, uh, between metastatic site versus the primary tumor. The primary tumor is more likely to be positive. The biology, there tends to be more TILs uh, as well in, in the primary tumor. So again, we do want to interrogate, if at all possible, uh, the metastatic site. Interesting enough, we saw some very early data that there are also differences in the type of metastasis that you biopsy uh, to determine positivity. We don't know yet what this means clinically. It appears, not surprisingly, for example, that lymph nodes are much more likely to be uh, pd one positive than especially a liver metastasis. Uh, lung also appears to be more positive. And again, we don't know why this is, but again, it could be that maybe the non-tumor-associated lymphatic systems that are more prominent in those organs might actually affect our assay. It would not be a surprise. Again, we don't know how clinically meaningful this is, but uh, if you can, I would try away from especially using lymph nodes for your assessing your pd one status. Here are uh, other um, 
agents that are coming along in triple negative breast cancer, they're not yet uh, approved. They don't have yet uh, phase three data. Uh, many of you have put patients on trials, um, uh, especially sesotuzumab looks very interesting. We won't go through the details here, but just to remind yourself and why we're not talking um, more about them as we're not yet using them clinically outside of clinical trials. Oh, just uh, coming back to endogen receptors, uh, many academic institutions will assess endogen receptor status, but again, we don't have phase three data. It is kind of a last uh, effort that some of us, and including myself, I have to admit, have used, um, but um, it, it's not officially part of our pathways either. So looking at NCCN for triple negative uh, breast cancer, or obviously endocrine-resistant breast cancer. You're well aware of these data, the preferred agents, especially anthracyclines and taxanes. Then we have additional agents that we can use. And we now have the PARP inhibitors, not just Olaparib, but also Telesoparib, that is, has become available now, both in triple negative breast cancer as well as ER positive breast cancer, as long as they are HER2 negative and a BRCA1 or BRCA2 germline mutant. Now we've just discussed atezolizumab and lapaclitaxel data. Just briefly, uh, um, to uh, review the Olympiad Olaparib data and the BRCA data, both FDA-approved PARP inhibitors. Uh, they have been assessed now in germline mutant uh, BRCA1 or 2 positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer patients compared to the uh, choice of standard chemotherapy but not compared to platinums, as you're aware of, or taxanes. What's valuable in that comparison is that even compared to the beta-tolerated chemotherapies, these agents uh, not only improve progression-free survival by about three months, uh, have a much better response rate compared to single-agent chemotherapy in the 60% range and compared to the 25 to 30% range for single-agent chemotherapy. Uh, the serious adverse event rates uh, does seem appear to be favorable, although telesoprip does have more serious hematologic adverse events um, uh, compared to Aloprep, so again, the toxicity profiles matter to us clinically and to patients and, and clearly should be discussed. So PARP inhibitors uh, are the uh, preferred agents for mutant for many mutant, uh, BRCA mutant uh, breast cancer patients, probably in the absence of a visceral crisis. We have very little data there. I probably would go with a dual chemotherapy agent, although even that can be discussed at this point. Uh, we, compared to single-agent chemotherapy, we have the better relative uh, uh, response rate. Uh, we have the better quality of light quality of life data that we're not discussing today, and we have this potential for prolonged disease control. It's a small subgroup, uh, anywhere in the 5 to 10% range probably. Those data are still emerging. They're still kind of hush-hush being discussed uh, in the background, but we really don't have that with chemotherapy either. So for those patients, uh, um, this is, what is huge, right? If we can keep them controlled with PARP inhibitor alone for many months to some potentially years, uh, it's a huge quality of life impact and, and disease control. It probably makes the difference if they go to work uh, or, or are on disability. 
also PARP inhibitors, we don't have yet the data specifically, but um, it appears more and more that uh, patients who have been on platinums are, unlike, are likely resistant to PARP inhibitors. So while the, these data are not definitive, um, most in the academic setting uh, strongly recommend that if it's a mutant patient, BRCA mutant patient, a PARP inhibitor should be used first. Uh, it's unclear if platinums will still work afterwards. Um, we will try it um, uh, in, in a few patients. We have been successful, but there's likely cross-resistance both ways, but particularly if the platinum, platinum therapy was before PARP inhibitor therapy. Uh, they're also likely more effective in the first line uh, compared to subsequent line, again, early emerging data. Nothing definitive yet there. And we've discussed already in detail uh, tesalizumab, uh, a PDL1 positive patient, that we need confirmatory trials as this is a kind of a, nearly a post subgroup analysis. Talking about combinations, very briefly, there are no preferred combinations. Uh, we know over decades of research now that uh, essentially combinations do not improve uh, overall survival or patient longevity over single-agent chemotherapy. Again, maybe with the caveat uh, where, where it gets done and where I would use it as well as in a patient in visceral crisis who needs a fast response. Um, if, if they are not, uh, if they don't have a PARP inhibitor option, I clearly would go with dual agent in, the, in that small subgroup. And this is, I think, where the future lies. This is actually ovarian cancer data. We don't even go through the trial data, but I want you to see our ovarian colleagues uh, at ESMO again reminding us they're doing now uh, forearm trials uh, where they're comparing a sequential therapy to combination therapy. And I think that's where we need to go in most disease areas if we have agents that have enough single agent activity. As it's for most of combinations of the combinations that we're using, we really don't have clarity if there is synergism. And um, the discussion is more and more that for most combinations, there is no synergism, meaning that uh, if we use sequential therapy, it's probably as beneficial uh, as combination therapy. But we will only know that if we actually do, com do the comparison of sequential therapy versus combination therapy. So the potential bio, future biomarkers for PARP inhibitors, um, uh, we currently only have phase three data for the germline, but the somatic data looks promising um, beyond breast cancer. It's already coming in, in other disease areas, especially ovarian cancer. They're discussing now use um, really across uh, germline and somatic data, as well as HRD uh, data. Um, in breast cancer, we're much further behind in this regard. It's likely coming, um, but you should not do it off protocol. Um, patients should be encouraged to go on trials to get the answers to these questions. As there, while there are a lot of similarities across tumors, we do find these differences that we need to parse out um, between solid tumors. Uh, and it's not 100% clear, and we, we do need to get the answers to these questions. But the clinical benefit rate uh, for somatic data uh, probably will develop. It's unclear which, uh, 
which are the specific mutations that work in breast cancer. Uh, and uh, so this caveat that we've heard uh, from Erica Mayer at ASCO uh, this year about the HID score, while it seemed like a slam dunk uh, and works in ovarian cancer to predict um, both platinum response data as well as PARP inhibitor data. Sure enough, in breast cancer in the neoadjuvant setting, uh, while it improves a little bit the response rate for uh, platinums or cisplatin in this case, it actually is not better compared to taxane uh, in the HID group uh, and um, does not substantially predict uh, platinum therapy either and clearly does not show any superior efficacy uh, for platinum versus taxane. So in the early stage setting, platinums should not be guided by any idea of HID or uh, BRCA mutation status. Uh, and we don't have overall survival data either that adding platinums, uh, even in triple negative breast cancer patients, improves their longevity. We do have PATH-CR improvement, but it's still unclear if that actually translates into an overall survival improvement. And these biologic data further question the platinum use in the early stage setting. So talking about pathway choices and issues in triple negative breast cancer, so we have the PARP inhibitors for germline BRCA1 and uh, 2 mutations, a clear option. Hopefully we will get soon additional biomarkers. Those trials are actively ongoing, uh, and we appreciate your support in getting those answers and, and finding the patients. We have the Impassion 130 da uh, data. Again, still some questions about uh, uh, um, pd one inhibitor used together with napaclitaxel in triple negative breast cancer. Currently, um, there is this overall survival improvement in the subgroup. This has led to FDA approval. This has led to all of us using these agents, uh, including in the first-line setting. But the question is, uh, is your patient better served by these um, preliminary data or, or maybe a, an ongoing uh, clinical trial that may have a more interesting question? Um, there might be imbalances in response biomarkers that might explain these results. Uh, also, this disconnect between overall survival and progression-free survival data as we don't see that plateau in breast cancer that we've seen in other uh, solid tumors. Uh, these data need to be confirmed. Uh, we need clearly response biomarkers uh, because if, if you think about it, we're exposing all of metastatic triple negative breast cancer to these agents that have substantial toxicities that can be rapidly fatal, particularly cardiac and pulmonary toxicities um, and uh, may cause long-term autoimmune disease or autoimmune-like uh, syndromes in these patients that may complicate future therapies, particular um, targeted agents that has been seen in lung cancer, and we don't yet know uh, what this means for breast cancer. So clearly, uh, we need both for physical as well as financial toxicities uh, biomarkers to more responsibly and personalized guide the use of these agents. And uh, given the limited benefit of that progression-free survival of around two, 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 two and five months, uh, it's particularly concerning what this means to our sicker real-world real comorbid patients that likely have a higher toxicity rate um, and that may eliminate the, this limited benefit that was seen. The essay we've talked extensively about, so we won't go into further detail, but the current FDA-approved um, 
concurrent assay is the standard of care, and a metastatic site uh, should be your primary choice to assess pdl one status. Uh, as well as your mutation status, if at all possible. Liquid biopsies are not quite ready yet for prime time. Hopefully in the next few years, we'll get those definitive data. So how about pathway choices and issues for ER positive or two negative metastatic breast cancer? CDK for six inhibitors, now a significant advancement in the care of metastatic breast cancer patients to prolong that chemotherapy period. We now have extensive overall survival data, now both in the first line and second line setting across the major clinical subgroups, including now premenopausal women, which is uh, wonderful news. Uh, resistance biomarkers look interesting, but not yet ready for clinical use. The key question, when should I use CDK for six inhibitor? Uh, which patient can I spare it in first line and see if she does not have a prolonged response on AI alone, uh, where I uh, could keep her for years on, on a much better quality of life regimen? Those data uh, we don't have. Those remain major questions. Uh, the subgroup analysis uh, look like that all patients benefit. There has been some question of bone-only disease. Uh, and again, we don't know of sicker comorbid patients as they were not in trials. Uh, clearly, the quality of life data will be critical to guide our patients and, and assess their preferences uh, if they would like the addition up front or wait for the second-line uh, overall survival improvement. BRCA mutant uh, breast cancer POP inhibitors clearly prolong uh, progression-free survival. The overall survival data is still pending. Uh, clearly um, better quality of life compared to chemotherapy. And there are some emerging promising early phase data that together PARP inhibitor plus pd one inhibitor uh, appears to be a very promising strategy. And if you have a trial for your patient, that would be a nice combination to use. Uh, PIG3CA pathway now also has um, uh, alpalisib uh, together with filvestrand, uh, improving progression-free survival. Overall survival, again, are still pending. Uh, reached FDA approval this year, uh, and uh, we have unclear benefit currently and unclear data in diabetic patients uh, given the hyperglycemia data that we did not have the chance to discuss today. Um, mTOR agents, uh, Everolimus uh, has a lack of overall survival improvement uh, and can be more difficult to tolerate. So uh, this uh, question is uh, how much use and how beneficial is this to your patient? And other agents such as AKT inhibitors and HDEC inhibitors still under development for definitive changes in standard of care. So our goal is really to uh, provide not only high-quality and value-based care, but also personalized care. You're very familiar with the major uh, categories that we use to personalize patient care, including patient disease data, diagnostics, pathways now will help us uh, hopefully to improve our our evidence-based therapy options that are ever getting ever more complicated and will make it particularly challenging for the community oncologists to keep track. Um, we are using outcomes data, obviously, to guide our patients for shared decision-making, and then supportive care uh, uh, and EHR and analytic tools uh, hopefully help us as well. I do want to highlight, um, again, um, not just comorbidities and performance status, and likely these agents, we have no data in poor performing uh, patients. Um, it's unlikely they're going to change the tra tra trajectory of your poor performance status patients, especially uh, PDL1 inhibitors. There are data emerging that in performance status two or worse probably will not move the needle much. And most importantly, it's really the patient preferences, their life goals. Uh, 
uh, and their quality of care uh, that matter, that, that drive the ultimate decisions, not, not our outcomes data, uh, but uh, what really are their main purposes in life. And uh, we don't have time to go through the data, but uh, in the geriatric population, we have now two major studies that suggest that 60 to 70% of geriatric oncology patients actually prefer quality of life as the main driver of their uh, therapeutic choice rather than prolonging life, especially if it's just a few months uh, that most of these agents provide. And again, uh, reminding you that progression-free survival is just a surrogate outcome. It's overall survival, really prolonging life that matters or improving the quality of life of the patient as we're always increasing the toxicity rate or and the total cost if we add an agent. So clearly adding an agent just to improve progression-free survival is not uh, beneficial to your patient uh, as progression-free survival does not correlate with quality of life uh, and not in all instances does it improve overall survival either as we uh, find time and again despite it being a surrogate outcome. So um, Again, reminding you that beyond overall survival and progression-free survival for shared decision-making, we clearly need quality of life data as well as toxicity and cost data as well. And uh, it's really the physical, emotional, social needs of the patients that we need to meet as well that may drive uh, an unusual clinical decision uh, beyond uh, what our overall survival data would suggest. Uh, as we're all uh, striving to do patient-centered care, I really see a very encouraging cultural change that is happening, that this is really uh, a team effort, and it's the team that helps guide the patients, that helps us find uh, the goals and preferences, what our patients really want from us, and not uh, that, that curve, the progression-free survival curve in particular, that should drive our decision-making. Um, so I acknowledge, especially ASMO and ASCO presenters that have given us a lot of new data this year. It's been an incredible year in breast cancer, uh, particularly Dr. Lorbel and Dr. Rugo and also Dr. Anderson, or Dr. Anders, uh, uh, very, very instrumental. Uh, in, in getting some of the newest data together. Uh, I thank also our patients, their families, caregivers, and patient advocates that have been quite involved with our local effort and our OncoAlert, now Twitter, international oncologist uh, group that has developed uh, across nearly all the major continents. Uh, we're missing some Africa, especially Africa, and not too much in Asia yet, but uh, we are about 100 colleagues that are keeping each other up to date and, and have these international and global discussion points now in breast cancer and Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Um, I think uh, this might enrich your effort as well. And now we're going very happy to answer any questions. Certainly. Thank you for your very attentive post-brandial <laughs> audience. Any questions? No? Yeah, a lot of have, new data. We have Anything? one coming to, the, coming to the mic. Here we go. Two coming to the mic. Super. Okay, we'll let, let him go. He's Super. at the mic right now. We'll do yes, that first. Please go. Hi. My name's Andrew. I'm from Novartis Oncology. Um, just question regarding quality of life and the shared decision-making progress. Um, coming from the industry perspective, what data points do you think we could collect to represent um, that information that's valuable to patients in that process. 
Really great question, and it's actually the million-dollar question that the FDA is trying to answer right now. Uh, it, you're right. Your question is right on point. That is still the challenge that that's holding uh, the FDA up to actually bring up a formal bring up a formal guidance on this issue. Um, it's actively under discussion. And I think the FDA will come down to a very reasonable assessment. And what they're pushing for now is actually a very focused quality of life assessment rather than a broad quality of life assessment. Um, although, with the, so we don't know yet. We don't have standards. And there will be standards not only for every solid tumors that will differ, uh, as well as I think they will start to differ even based on the therapy. We will probably even get specific quality of life tools for, for specific um, uh, uh, yeah, ther- various therapies. Having said this, what I think we should include, what really matters to the patients, is not just the global quality of life assessment. We just actually saw in the Annals of Oncology, which drives this point home, um, that the global quality of life measure didn't change so much. They looked at over 4,000 early-stage breast cancer patients for chemotherapy or endocrine therapy, but when they drilled it down to some specific um, uh, um, measures such as cognitive function, um, as well as fatigue uh, or pain, um, it, it matters. And so, uh, including social function, actually, they found a substantial impact of endocrine therapy in the postmenopausal women on social function uh, and cognitive function, uh, and the reverse, actually, for chemotherapy in premenopausal women. Uh, so again, it's, there, there will be differences even by subgroups, and uh, having some key, key functional status will be particularly important, including social function and cognitive function beyond just your regular toxicity measures. One more over here. Hello, my name is Chuko Deze, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Celgene. And my question actually dovetails um, with his question. And it really, um, when you showed in that past figure on clinical benefit, quality of life, and also toxicity, could you, it, when, when you're thinking about ordering in terms of importance, how would you um, rank that quality of life compared to some of the toxicities? Um, which one would you think is more important or... That's a really interesting question, and it actually is evolving. Five years ago, as clinicians, we would have mostly disregarded quality of life and would have said, yes, we should know about it, we should discuss it, but it's the efficacy data and the toxicity data that drive our decisions, obviously, particularly life-threatening toxicity data. Now, the life-threatening toxicity data is kind of merged into that overall survival curve, right? So at least for healthy, non-comorbid, patient, we have those overall survival curves, so they're kind of already in there. Now, you don't have that for sicker comorbid patients, so it, that needs real-world data and gives a more, would give a more subtle answer for that, and we will, the FDA is actually pushing for that as well, that we get some real-world toxicity data as well. But as we know that the fatal toxicities are in that overall survival curve in general, other toxicities obviously matter as well. But for example, hematologic toxicities often are asymptomatic or maybe have a little bit fatigue, but um, it's not, you know, we know that improving anemia only if it's severe probably has a major impact, for example, on fatigue. So 
our toxicity assessment, by the way, will also change in how it will be reported. Um, there's the ToxT that's coming that will look more longitudinally. We'll not just look at the main uh, highest grade toxicity, but on the longitudinal um, pattern of the toxicities. And we're finding more and more this disconnect between our toxicity reporting uh, versus the quality of life and PRO data. And again, that's I encourage you to look at this annals paper in breast cancer that would suggest this as well. Um, and um, so I think what we'll find more and more that actually the PRO quality of life data plus the overall survival data will probably become the major drivers. Thank you. Any other questions? Excellent. Thank you very much, Dr. Cooter. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.